Cool. Well, Yan, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I think we're gonna have a couple people join a few minutes late, but that's okay. Um, it's, uh, you know, fun to have you. Um, Yan and I have suffered through running the Harvard stairs together a few times, and I've managed <laughs> to avoid, uh, you know, defecating on the Harvard stairs. So I'm quite proud of that. Um, and uh, have been buddies for a long time. And today he's going to talk to us about some cool uh, semi-open source robotics. Um, so I'm, I'm just handing the stage over to you, Yan, but uh, it's all yours. Yeah. Awesome. Hi, everyone. Um, uh, yeah, my name is Jan. I'm, uh, um, as my job, I'm a product manager of what we call low-cost automation at a company called Igus. They're located, they're a German company, but they're located in uh, Rhode Island. And um, the whole department is branded uh, low-cost automation. And um, what's really interesting is that the goal really is to figure out how to um, you know, broaden the uh, use cases for industrial automation that includes robots, but also all kinds of other, you know, automation um, that you might not think about when you think about robotics. But there's a, yeah, there's many, many um, bottlenecks right now that kind of hold up the adaption or adoption of, of automation in factories. Uh, we see with the big car manufacturing plants, um, some you know, a lot of automation there. If you think of a car car factory, it's uh, fully automated uh, and it looks really, really cool with a bunch of robot, robot arms and everything else. But if you look at other segments of the industry, like consumer goods or retail, logistics, there's still a lot and a lot done by hand, which comes with a lot of different pain points. So that's what we're here to solve. Um, we're here to um, kind of like understand what is the, what are the problems in the market? Why? Why aren't robots adopted in in smaller companies, and uh, how can we do something about it? So it's a it's a really fun job. Um, we're having a a good time. Anything from uh, looking at it from a markets perspective, but also looking at you know building components and building uh, systems that are as a, as a Max already kind of explained, semi open source, and that's that's something that's that's really important. So. I'm going to split this a little bit. I'm going to kind of like go through my normal presentation, kind of like share the problems or what we're trying to do. And then we can dive deep, a little bit deeper into like the actual robot arms that we make and how to program them and uh, and everything. And then hopefully we have a lot of time after to to discuss or chat about what what I talked about. I'd love some feedback as well. So without further ado, I'll go and share my screen and then... Uh, let me see. Actually, let me. This is the perpetual problem of can a room full of PhD and PhD students uh, figure out how to share a screen? Um, <laughs> That's good. Is that what I just joined? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. You should be able to see it. Thank God I only have a bachelor, so I maybe I can I can push it onto that fact. <laughs> yeah, we learn we learn screen sharing at the PhD level only. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a uh, very aggressive branding, low cost automation. You know, some people might think that's cheap. Uh, the idea is to um, lower the cost, uh, lower the barrier of entry into automation, and specifically industrial automation. Um, so. 
Let's see. Uh, perfect. So this is a study from McKinsey from 2022, um, kind of like saying that, and the only the most important sentence is on the top. Uh, the major bottlenecks for the adoption of industrial automation is cost and the lack of knowledge. So not really understanding um, robotics and automation and uh, also robotics and automation being too complex. And then on the other hand, uh, way too expensive. Um, so you can see that here it's kind of broken down into different industries. And you can see um, that the percentages are pretty high when it comes to cost. So it doesn't really make sense to automate something because the cost savings that come from automations aren't high enough for the investment to pay off. Another thing is uh, that sometimes we just don't have the technology yet that would would allow us to automate a task. You know, wiring cables, for example, is something that is really, really hard to do with a robot. It's very finicky, um, something that humans do almost everywhere. Haven't really seen really good solutions out there. And then also the third one, knowledge to how to implement systems. Um, it's really, really hard for somebody that runs a factory um, to also be a robotics engineer, a mechanical engineer, and then an elect electrical engineer at the same time while having to worry about the whole business on the other end. So um, we've seen the adoption of um, automation, uh, in-house automation teams, like knowledge groups that can kind of work on it. But obviously that's a luxury um, out there. So what we have done is, uh, at IGUS, we've come up with um, with low-cost automation. So basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to lower the cost of our robots while also making them easier to integrate, so taking the, the cost away. So I have a video here. It's kind of a um, um, a case study, and sorry, it's in German, but um, basically it showcases the traditional approach versus our low-cost automation approach. And um, the application is a typical conveyor picking application. So goods come down a conveyor belt and then get picked and placed in a box to then be shipped somewhere else. So you can see on the left, we see a Delta, pretty high pick rate. So you need a fast robot. And then you have a camera system locating the robot on the, uh, the components on the conveyor belt. You can see some of the pricing here, but basically a huge chunk of the pricing is integration and you end up with a total cost of 100,000 euros slash dollars. Now, comparing this to the low-cost automation approach, you can see that you know the robot itself is a lot more affordable, but also you don't have a camera system or any integration tasks. So what you can see here that is that it's super easy to integrate, so most people can actually do it themselves, and you have a 10x cost reduction, so an order of magnitude less. Another thing that's super interesting is that we use two systems instead of one, but we're still being an order of magnitude lower. And I'll go into why that is and how we think about that. But um, yeah, this is one of the most interesting case, case studies that we've done is that there has to be, for the people that design automation, there has to be you know, um, different way of thinking about it. You can't just use the fanciest robot arm and then expect it to do something, but really have to you know, go go about something else. So we define low-cost automation basically with the goal that we want to automate stuff that wasn't really able, we weren't really able to automate before through the way that we approach it, but also through the robots that we use and thereby lower the cost of uh, the barrier of entry into aut industrial automation. So when you, when you talk about this or when you think about this principle of 
How do I make it more accessible? For one, the hardware has to be more affordable. So you really have to make sure, have to figure out like, hey, how can I drive the component price down of those robots? Do I use robots that are less capable because they still fit into that application? Um, or do I you know, build new robots? That's something that, for example, we as IGES did. We built um, a, ro a plastic robot, a robot arm that you can see that that is fully made out of um, performance plastics, except for the motors and the controls, obviously. But um, most of this is injection molded. The gears are 3D printed, and it drives the cost down significantly and makes um, all kinds of new applications possible because of the price point. And then second is the integration. So it doesn't really help you to get a bunch of uh, robots in your facility if you don't know how to program them, maintain them, or make them work together. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of um, time, knowledge, and uh, just experience required to really build an automated system for a factory. This is due to the fact that it's kind of complicated to to program this. You do need to have people that know how to program and you know have some some experience with the, what they call PLC programming. It turns out a PLC programmer at the moment goes by goes for seventy dollars an hour which they don't have, they do not have a university degree. It's just a trade. I think it's probably the best trade or one of the best trades uh, that you could do uh, with a payoff. But in the end of the day, it's a very rare, um, these people, and that's why why they're so, so expensive. And uh, yeah, so there's all kinds of programs. And so if you can, if you want to make automation more accessible, you have to drive down the cost of the components and you have to make it easier to integrate so that you don't spend two weeks programming your robot to make it work, but maybe half a day to a day. That should be the goal. Because time is money, and if you have to pay a programmer two weeks, I think you all know how much how much that might cost. So um, cool. So what is the approach of, I, I said there has to be, be multiple things. You have to drive down the cost of hardware, and you have to make it easy to use. But there also has to be a, a systems level approach, right? If you look at a if you look at an application, you can't just be like, hmm, well, I know that this robot arm is really good, so maybe I'll use that. Um, we call the approach slicing the elephant. So basically, that you seen the Delta robot that was picking components from the conveyor belt. We're trying to uh, break that process down into individual steps. So on the low cost automation approach, you've seen that there was um, a guiding system that kind of like automatically place the components in one spot. So you didn't really need a camera system anymore that located this. Then you had a pusher that would always push four of these components to the side to then have more accumulation. And then you have another robot that picks them and places them in the box. So one big advantage is that without with only having to pick every fourth time, you don't need a robot that's as, as fast, right? So by slicing, the application down into individual steps. You might want to. You might have to use more robots, but the specs for those for those robots drastically come down. So you're just using a linear rail that drives back and forth, controlled by a stepper motor with a stepper motor driver, and uh, nothing fancy about that. Comparing it to like a Delta robot that has to pick 150 times a minute. So it's kind of the idea, and that's the approach that the people that are designing the system have to get to. Now, 
we can go into why that's not the case at the moment in the industry. The incentives are just not the right ones, but um, yeah, I think next. Uh, so basically we need affordable technology. That means by slicing the elephant, you have to really figure out like what really is the precision that's required of your robot. How fast does it really have to go? And what's the payload? So there's the trade-off, right? If you want to maybe pick four items at a time, if they're all light, you rather pick all four at a time and move them because that allows you to drive down the speed. If they're really, really heavy and you want to pick them at the same time, it might be more expensive to have a really bulky robot instead of using a one that is a little bit faster. So those are the trade-offs that you have to do between precision, speed, and payload. So you can just see some of the systems that are deployed in the industry, but also that we, we offer and we develop ourselves. You can see uh, linear systems, gantry robots on the left, two axis and three axis. Then after that, you see a delta robot. They also sometimes call the spider robot and then a robot arm. So just to quickly maybe explain a little bit when you would use something like this, the gantry systems on the left, as you can already see, their workspace is kind of very efficient. So the ratio between workspace and robot size is really, really efficient. You have a lot of workspace, a lot of flexibility, and you can custom make them to your application. That means if you need one thing that is a little bit slimmer, you can just cut down the, the extrusion that this is mounted to, cut down the belt, and uh, adjust it like that. Then you have the Delta robot that is really fast. So the workspace is quite small. That is one of the downsides, but it is really fast as you can see. So if you have to pick from a conveyor belt really, really quick, Delta is your go-to. And then you have the robot arm over there and you can see it can do all kinds of fancy motion profiles, kinematics that allows you to uh, do tasks that are a little bit more complicated. Typically we, one of the most common applications is the pick and place. So picking something up and placing it down that you can achieve with all three robots on the left. But then the second most common application is pick, place, or pick, flip, and place. So picking something up, flipping it out, down, and then placing it down again. And that's something that then a six axis robot, like those robots arm come in really, really handy. Cool. Now, I, that's a lot of theory. Uh, we always like to apply it a little bit as well. Um, so this is an example out of our factory where um, we have these injection molding machines. Basically, it's a press, and then they pump in plastic to mold it into a specific form, and then they release it, and then the parts fall out, just like an automated process. And you can see those um, metal kind of sliders there that are basically have to be placed inside of this injection molding machine to mold plastic around it. That was quoted to us by an integrator for, I think, around 70,000 euros. Um, for a robot that is barely faster than um, a human being. I think the human was able to load four of these in to the machine in about 45 seconds on average. So every cycle took 45 seconds. And now with this system, we got it down to 16 seconds. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just play the video to show you how, how it works. But basically, you can see that instead of one robot arm, which we were quoted, that picks these, with the camera system and vision and everything super complicated, we have a lot of small systems that work neatly together and then also um, improve the cycle time. 
So here you can see kind of a shaker table. They move it around and make these, uh, uh, include some uh, randomization in them. And then there's a camera that kind of locates the one that can be picked. You have a suction cup gripper that kind of picks these and places them into a form where there's four of them. There's also a camera system that locate that understands if the if the slider is in the right orientation, and if not, then it will flip them. So what I said, pick, place, and flip. And now you can see they're being put into this form. And now given to another robot that then takes them, flips them, given to another robot that then takes them and puts them into the into the machine. Obviously, this is not at full speed. But uh, we were able, I, I think, to automate this for about $25,000. So almost more than half the cost, way quicker. And um, that is why this also made sense to automate, because you can, you can imagine these are small you know, metal sliders with a little bit of plastic around. They don't cost that much, and we don't sell them for much. So every, getting a $70,000 system for each of these injection molding machines just wouldn't really pay off. So that's why we were stuck with humans. And that is not a fun job to put these things into the machine all day, every day. That is not a fun job. So that's one of the examples of low-cost automation, how we use it in our facility. Um, but we can also apply it to all kinds of other systems. Cool. So that's what we define as low-cost automation. As a... Uh, as our sales team was you know, going out and offering people our robots that we make, the gantry solutions, the Delta, the robot arms, we did though find that most customers were definitely still overwhelmed with working just with the, with the robot because they still have to find, hey, how do I mount this robot? How, what kind of hand end effect or gripper has to be at the end of the robot? And how do they all work together? Just an example, you have the robot, and then you have the gripper, then you have to figure out how to mount the gripper to the robot. You have to understand, does this robot, does this gripper even communicate with the robot? How does this work? I don't know. So we got to a position where we were actually recommending most of the systems to be, to people, you know, grippers, cameras, um, conveyor belts, all this kinds of stuff that you look at auto industrial automation. So that's why we came up with RBTX, a marketplace, where we would sell but also um, consult on other co other companies' components and robots. So we not only sell our robots on there, we also sell other people's robots that might fit different applications than ours. Because obviously it's really hard to make a robot that can do anything. You will never be price competitive there. And I think this is kind of where, where we dive into what I mean with open source um, or semi-open source. So the idea of this marketplace is that um, instead of building an automation closed operating system, we want to build a, a semi-open source marketplace. This is the same for our robot, but also for us. You see many of our competitors out there that try to build this nice software platform for robotics and automation. And they have all these components that can integrate it. And it's a neat little software and um, very expensive too, but um, because it requires a lot of development. But we really see that uh, it's really, really hard to build an operating system for industrial automation or for your factory. So what we uh, what we try to do is we try to keep it open source 
in the sense that you can add any components to it uh, that, that you want. And all of our robots you can buy with control or without control. Um, so let's say you want to put your own controller on our robot. That is totally possible. So um, this, in general, this is the platform. And I might as well switch to the, to, to the newest platform now. Yeah. So the platform kind of consists of uh, products that we offer. So this, these are like our robots here. But you can also see universal robots. That's maybe a robot brand that you've heard of, Epson robots, and all kinds of stuff. Um, one thing that we do is we're super price transparent. So all the prices are listed on our platform. For most of these products, you won't really find them anywhere else, or it's not the list price. So that's something that people really appreciate about the platform. You can see all kinds of grippers, um, yeah, pneumatics, but also other accessories that range from you know, uh, robot covers over seventh axes, cubes, framing, all this kinds of stuff. And then secondly, we go into the applications. What we do is we list all the applications that we're allowed to share, but successfully implemented. We list them on this platform so people can browse around and kind of understand how we solve the problem. Let's go, let's go in here. This is an application that we built for trade shows. So not a real application, but still a really good one to show where somebody that is new to automation could go in here and kind of like see how we solve the problem. So this is our Rebel, our robot arm. It's our low cost, low cost robot arm for $7,000. Um, every, every one of this, these solutions have a, have a price with them and a video. So you know exactly how much it costs you know exactly um, how, how it works because the video typically shows you really well. So in this example, they have some circuit boards that are rotating and then the robot is taking pictures of them by having a camera at the end of the robot arm. Um, you can learn more about this in the text and then you have all the components that were used in this application. So for somebody that is challenged with the their boss came into the office in the morning and they were like, you know what, Ben, I really want you to now automate this process. And Ben is like, I don't know how, how, how am I even going to start? They can come on here, figure out how we did it, and then kind of, you know, do it themselves or reach out to us and we can do it for them. Another interesting fact is you can, you know, find all the information on all the components um, and you can book a free call with us where we can just help them. Um, but the idea really is that, you know, People can choose these components, put them together. And uh, let's say I'd add them to the card. The platform is designed to improve uh, or like simplify the process and take away work from the, from, the, um, from the consumer. So basically you just chose um, uh, the camera and the robot and it will actually, it will actually include the mounting kit for the camera. This means that Typically, if you go to a company and you order this camera, they will send you the camera. And then you'll be like, well, I do need cables, right, to plug them in. And they're like, well, you didn't say that. And so every time you buy something, you need to figure out, do you have to go through that catalog? They probably have thousands of cables. And then they're like, well, do you want it in one meter, one and a half meters, two meters, three and a half meters, five meters, 10 meters? Do you want to shield it? Do you want an ESC? I don't know. So... Um, Basically, what we do is we include this automatically. 
so that it's easy for you and you don't have to worry about it. That is the idea of like how to simplify kind of working it together. Also, on the other hand, what the system does is it, it shows you which components don't work. So you can see all of the, these grippers that would work with this combination of you know camera and robot. But then if you scroll down, you also see all the grippers that don't work. So some of our partners, but also just any really industrial automation company that provides components, they have a lot of variances. They, they pride themselves. You go onto the website of a gripper company and you're like, I think I need that gripper. That is only the beginning of your search. Because if you, if you go, go in there, then you see they have 2,000 variants of that same gripper with all kinds of different add-ons and everything else. So what we do is we just pick one, and then that might not be the perfect gripper for you out of the 2,000s, but we know that they work. So that's the idea of the platform. Um, yeah, let's say we add that gripper. We add that to the robot. And you should see... We didn't only add the cobalt pump, we also added the mounting plate and the screws. And uh, yeah, the cable is already included in the gripper. So ideally, if you get this package, you should be able to screw it together. We do have um, a big wiki page um, that explains kind of like how to do this. And this is kind of our approach to make to making sure that somebody that's interested and maybe has some engineering background can build their own automation systems. Cool. Um, on the other hand, we have over 400 solutions. And then if customers really, if or if we don't think, we recommend them. If, if, if they really don't have the capability to automate, then we also have a partner network that is not only components. So, so these are components. You know, Schmalz is a gripper um, company, but we also have industrial engineering, um, companies that basically can design the systems for you and build them for you as well, all under the idea of low cost. So what is the best What is the best component for the best value? What is the best service for the best value? So that's the idea of, of doing this. Now, that is kind of why I'm really passionate about open source is because I see many, many companies out there that build um, productized solutions that are fully enclosed, kind of like iOS. So I always uh, describe us as the Android of industrial automation, where we're trying to build a platform. We're trying to make it easy to integrate and kind of like something to build off of. But I want to keep it open so that people can add stuff. They can take stuff out. They can choose to you know run the whole thing on ROS if they want. They can use our controller. So uh, that is the important stuff, uh, part where we don't want to become the iOS because for automation, in my opinion, that will never work unless you really specialize in one specific use case. Let's say I really want to, I really want to put caps, the cap of the pen onto the cap onto the pen. Fine. Uh, if I just make a, pro a solution for that, I might be able to go away, get away with a closed um, kind of like automation system. Cool. That is kind of like the platform idea of RBTX, where you can get components, find solutions, do that. I think in the next step, I wanted to show the actual software that we wrote. And feel free to be critical. Um, we're Be aware that we're a plastics manufacturer that started <laughs> building software. But it is kind of cool, and I'm excited to show you.
So I guess started not with this platform, but they started with the whole robot, uh, robot idea. How can we make systems that are affordable? So we tend to be about half of the cost of other competitive solutions in the robot arm space, well, almost a third to a fourth of the cost of other robot arms. Um, you can see here, all of our robots, funny enough, uh, their controller is based on a Raspberry Pi um, that is a little bit modified. Um, but the nice thing about it is that they can all be controlled with the same uh, software interface. So you can select your project here. And this software is free. You can download it online and just play around yourself if you really want to. Actually, it's, it's pretty cool. You can program all kinds of stuff and uh, um, has a bunch of APIs and interfaces as well. Um, so you can see we have different kind of Delta robot. We have three axes. They have like, you know, three, dim three dimension kind of, and then the two axes kind of more of a plane that goes up and down that you control with this gantries. Gantries are just linear actuators that you can kind of make all kinds of weird uh, systems with it. You can see here, this is like two Z axes that are on the other side. Then you have lead screws. You have really, really long ones. Um, and so on. Uh, Skyward robots, they're also pretty quick. It's a different kinematic. Um, and then the robot arms. These are our robot arms here. Um, all kinds of degrees of freedom, four, four degrees of freedom, six degrees of freedom, five degrees of freedom, but also each individual axis. So let's say you don't really want to buy our robot. You can just buy each of the axes and build your own. So you can just program each axis individually. These are our Robolinks. Um, this is the predecessor to the Rebel. They're industrial robot and not a cobot. And then, you know, kind of like the same with these. If you just want to buy these actuators and you make your own secret project out of them, you can just do that with this. So let's do the robot arm because I think it's the coolest. Um, it's really easy to program in here. You basically just go into the edit function and then you can open in another window. You can see this, right? Uh, yeah, you just write line by line, uh, seven digital inputs and outputs. You can do joint commands where you just control one, one joint and then move it to the position, or you do linear commands where basically you just tell the robot from the end effector, end of the robot go from this point to this point. So a little bit more straightforward, um, all kinds of you know functions, but in the end, pretty easy to to edit. Uh, you can add you know motion commands. You can add logic. You can write separate logic program uh, programs in the back. Uh, pretty cool. But then I think the power of this is that it looks like Excel or PowerPoint or Word. So everyone that kind of like opens this up is kind of like familiar with it in the first place. Other robot companies, they have like their own fancy interface. It's all kind of like optimized. But in the end of the day, we want that uh, somebody that works in a factory can program this. And we don't want them to spend 20 hours on learning learning and watching YouTube videos. We just want this to feel natural. So there's multiple ways that you can, and I stop this here, that you can program this. Once you can, you can just dra drag this and program this this way, where basically it records the position and you can just make a new point out of any position. You can teach it in. You can also, you know, control the each joint down here. Um, you can uh, switch from join profiles to base profiles. Now it's just X, Y, Z. And uh, you can choose the speed up here. So super, super easy. 
Um, I don't think I've ever gotten a training on it and I'm super comfortable to explain it to anyone. And uh, yeah, you. this is also a digital twin. So if you connect it to the robot, you will see the position of the actual robot. Um, you can control, control it with the gaming controller, which is quite fun. Um, we have camera integrations. And this is kind of the system that we built on. We built on APIs that it's easy to program, but we also built on adding more functions like vision and all this kind of stuff to the software to make it easy. This is all to say that you can buy this robot as the robot plug and play version with the software that is free, or you re-rip out the controller for you and you can just control it with your own, with your own software. That's what we call the open source robots. So all of our robots, you can also just buy the hardware and then do your own do-it-yourself robots, which there's many of them. And there's a bunch of cool YouTube videos on that as well. Um, I think that was basically what I wanted to show you. It's, I hope it was interesting. And I hope you have a lot of questions. But that's what we're trying to do, um, trying to disrupt the market by being lower cost and easier to deal with, um, and hopefully helping a lot of companies along the way. Yeah, and that's super cool. Thanks for sharing. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll start us with a question. So, you know, like, in, I don't know hardware at all, but in software, we spend most of our time debugging, I feel like. Like, I think I spend more time debugging than actually writing new code, especially when I have to work with existing code, you know, from uh, open source projects, or whatever. I would imagine that correct me if I'm wrong, but probably a lot of the cost in a robot would be related to when something goes wrong, like the not only how expensive it is to fix it, but also how much money you lose waiting until it is fixed, right, on the factory floor. So is that yeah. something you guys think about uh, with robots, like trying to design them to be, you know, design systems that are not just kind of cheap to build, but also cheap to fix or have like low downtime, that sort of analysis? And how does that play into things? Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Really good question. One of the... Basically, at the moment, the way that a company goes about building an automation system is they go to an integrator. That's what they're called. And that company basically builds you a machine that does it. The main problem with this model is that those integrators, they're really busy with making building new machines. They don't have time or nor do they want to troubleshoot machines that are broken from them. So there's many, many companies that have started automation and now have a system in their warehouse or somewhere that just doesn't run anymore. And so they've kind of given up on, on working with these together. Our system is a little bit different where we, with the platform as RBTX, we want to offer service plans or we do offer service plans where once in a year we come by, we do a visual visuals checkup in person of the system and make sure that you can, you know, you can deal with it. But also on the other hand, uh, all of our systems have log files. So you can just go on here collect the log files of the robot. Now I'm not connected to a robot, so uh, it won't collect them. Yep, it just gave me the error. Um, but you can then just contact our support team and we will help you out. This is a big, big, big uh, selling point for us that we will support the robots. And most of the time we're able to fix it remotely through those log files of the robot. You can see, oh my God, this, this, this motor has a temperature error or something like that. And uh, sometimes you're even able to, um, to, to do this here. So for example, here you can see I had a connection error because obviously I'm not connected to a robot. Um, so that's kind of the, the path there.
what's the weirdest industry you've supported working on? I mean, I know just for context, before you were doing this, you were making like robots that made micro pipettes, right? Which is also pretty peculiar, Uh, you know, not as interesting and somebody has to do it, but not, not what people maybe think of immediately when they think of robots, right? So like what, yeah, I'm just curious, like what's like the strangest industry uh, you you've uh, helped with that you can talk about? There's a, <laughs> well, there is some robots that are being used in the adult entertainment industry, but I think okay. um, <laughs> that is probably the weirdest. But then there's also robots like um, there, there are companies that try to mimic uh, psychedelic experiences and they, wow. they do, they use automated systems for that. So that was very weird that I never thought about. Um, and then in general, there's just, um, a lot of like my, something I would have never imagined before is, um, quality control or vision because those cameras that are being used, um, are very expensive. They're upwards of $30,000 sometimes. So if you can get a robot arm that can reposition the camera, that saves you a lot of cameras for different angles, right? So uh, that was something I never expected that if you have a $7,000 robot arm, you can reposition cameras and then save a lot of money there. Other than that, nothing too surprising, I think. That's what you were doing for Certina, right? I saw like the, the picture of the Certina watches. Yeah, yeah. So we were moving around to do visual, take pictures and then that picture gets get, gets analyzed on the back end. Okay. So most of the time the robot arm is there to to take the picture. Um, but yeah. Great talk. Maybe I could uh, chime in here with a question. So Max kind of kicked us off with a more of a software oriented one about uh, debugging. I used to do competitive robotics. And one of the things that was nice there is we had a firm end date, right? So in these industrial environments, there's not that. And so I feel like there would be a long maintenance tail for these automated systems. So when you guys are developing your cost models, are you taking that into consideration? And like, is that something that a customer of yours is aware of, right? Maybe I have a choice between two arms One's more expensive, but is less prone to breakages or parts are more readily available and stuff is more maintainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something you could speak to at all? Yeah. Um, so I mentioned it earlier. So basically our company's base technology, something that they started 80 years ago was um, engineered plastics. So like performance polymers. And one thing that they do with those plastics that we use is they infuse lubrication into the actual plastic material. So when they mold it, the lubrication is being uh, molded into the material. And so uh, if you talk about wear and maintenance, it's usually about, uh, you know, motion or sliding parts like gears and stuff like that have to be lubricated. They don't be, if they aren't lubricated the correct way too much or too little or not at all, then those components break and then you have to replace the parts. Typically for most robots, if you do everything well, it's fine. But going back to the original points, so basically what we developed is our plastic robot doesn't use lubrication. You don't have to maintain them. It's basically maintenance-free. That's what we what we call it. 
our gantries, they have, um, instead of ball bearings, I don't know if this says something to you, but ball bearings, basically they're little balls that, you know, slide around and they roll instead of sliding. They have to be lubricated and they break. For us, we have sliding elements. They're kind of like plane bearings. So they kind of touch on the surface of the rod and then they slide. And then over time, they also, you know, um, degrade at some point. But what you can do is you can just take the carriage off and take that plane bearing and push a new one in. So for about two to three dollars, you can just like exchange all of those things. Same for the robot arm. The robot arm comes with 3D printed gears. And if one of those breaks, God forbid, you can just get another one for two dollars and put them back in. So uh, that's kind of the idea where we call our robots maintenance free. And we also test them to the extent where we know, hey, if you if you use this robot, like with this use case, you should think about every two years to kind of ma ma change that that gear or to change that plane bearing. But this is all something that uh, we bake into it. And we try to we try to communicate that um, when you get the robot. And I think that's the strategy to lower the maintenance cost as well. And if you send us the log files, we know exactly how many cycles your robot did. And therefore we can say, hey, you know, you should start thinking about this. So part of our um, support package is that you can send us the log files once a month. And we have somebody look over them to make sure that everything is, looks to be all right. Awesome answer, thank you. So funny story about this, Raz. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I just had a quick question. So very interesting. I was uh, curious about the like the tool or the part of the website, I guess, that tells you about like pieces that work together. And you mentioned that there's loads of different options, uh, like different types of pieces, parts you can put together. So when you say like uh, that, you know that these two components work well together, is it because... Uh, your company has actually built a system that uses those two parts together, or is there some like automated, like, is this automated? Like that the matching of components that are compatible, yeah. like, how is that done? Like, is it just through experience and yeah. kind of related to that question? I wanted to know, like, what if a customer comes and they want to use products A and B together, and you know that products A and B together work well, and A and C together, and you know that A and C work together well, but you've never tried A, B, C together all at once. So is there any possibility that by like using all these three components together, then all of a sudden they're not compatible? Um, like, does that, are those situations that ever arise? I guess that's also something I'm interested in. Mm. Yeah. So, uh we try to kind of keep the optionality fairly low. So there is a, for the matrix itself, there's, we try to not add components that have, if you look at an application map and every component could be, is a bubble on that application map, we try mm -hmm. to not have these bubbles overlapping. So thereby we reduce the amount of options and that's kind of the way that we achieved a fairly, fairly low component count on our website. I think we're about 350 different components mm -hmm. um, that we then have to, uh, you know, make sure that they're compatible or 
make sure that we know that they're not compatible. Mm -hmm. Right now, most all of this is done by hand. Okay. Um, and most of these components have been tested as well. But it's fairly easy to say. There's just standard industry communication protocols. It's like mm -hmm. you can uh, I/O signals, for example. That's just a 24 volt signal. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if the gripper can be actuated with that, it's fairly it's it's very very easy to assume that the gripper would would work. Now, for mm -hmm. our robot, you get the power for the gripper from the robot. You just have to make sure the amperage and the voltage is good. Um, so that's the way that works. Um, so it's a big, big Excel spreadsheet, big file that we, whenever we add something, we add a bunch of different, you know, we have to think about all the different components and we tend to say, okay, this doesn't work. Uh, so we tend to err on the, on the side of caution than mm -hmm. on, on the risky thing to your second part. Um, there might be situations where if you, let's say you can put multiple grippers on the same robot, mm -hmm. uh, right? So you could actually have kind of like a an adapter plate that puts two grippers on the same robot, and then mm -hmm. the robot just uses that and then uses the other one for a different task. Mm -hmm. And so I assume there would be options where somebody could buy too many grippers and then to you know carry the amperage of those grippers at the same time would be too much for the robot and then it fails. And I don't think that's baked into the into the algorithm or like mm -hmm. into that cell spreadsheet. So yeah, so you could pick components that individually are compatible, but they're since it's kind of still like a spreadsheet. So like I guess what's interesting is like I mean a lot of effort has to go into making sure that you manage or curate like mm -hmm. your products, like you said, where you kind of have one, you pick out a good product that does task like X and you try not to add too many more products that also satisfy X because then you have like more overhead because then every time you add a new product to your spreadsheet, someone has to go and check like for all of the other products we have, how does it play with those? Uh, so that's a pretty interesting, and I guess that's the interesting part for me. Uh, is how do you like as you grow or you want to support more type, type of tasks like it becomes harder every time you'd like to add a new product so that's yeah so that's interesting yeah for sure it is uh it's gonna be harder but we also i mean the one good thing is that any given categories only we look at the compatibility to its add-ons mm -hmm. so we don't really assume that our robot is compatible with another robot of itself, right? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't mm -hmm. say, okay, our robot is compatible with its sibling, basically. Mm -hmm. So, and we would also not say our robot is compatible to a universal robot. What we are con uh, concerned with is that the robot works with the gripper or that mm -hmm. the robot works, you know, even with a camera system that that is integratable or not. And that's yeah, so it's more like not everything is related with compatibility, yeah. just like the like a given robot with accessories potentially. Yeah, the important thing is if the main control system of the system can communicate with all controllable components of the system. So let's say if I 
if I buy a industrial lamp, that I just plug into an outlet and then it's on. So that it doesn't, I don't, I don't have to check compatibility mm -hmm. unless I kind of want to wire that into the robot, which I don't really right. want to. But mm -hmm. I, what I care about is that I can control the conveyor that moves components and that I can control safety so that, you know, safety interlocks or safety scanners or so on work with the system. Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, with, with safety, you kind of outsource that to a uh, master controller anyways. So I think what we're mainly concerned about is actually the gripper compatibility. Mm -hmm. So that the robot can that in the in the software here I can control the gripper of the robot. So if mm -hmm. I go here, like you in the software, if you try to like add a gripper to the robot, and they like at least you know it'll tell you here that they're not compatible. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So that you don't buy something that will never work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Typically, the way that the industry works is there's a, there's a usually you buy individual components and then you buy a master, master computer, a PLC programmable logic controller, um, that then controls everything individually and then uh, you program that. But here mm -hmm. we try to kind of base it on the, on the robot, robot mm -hmm. base. But sometimes mm -hmm. you just need that. You, there's no way to go around it at that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. How would like to make sure that if you it's, like the in, it's the question about the inventory, I guess the inventory management is like the that whole topic. Like A B works, A C works, but A B C doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You were showing uh, some code before, and you know it has like explicit coordinates in it. Is that the way that programmers in this space are accustomed to working or are there like higher level languages that will use some sort of SAT solving or something to figure out what the coordinates would be based off abstract instructions, like pick this thing up here, put it down over there. And then it like derives, you know, the, the arc it goes through in order to do that. You mean the position or the, the yeah. way to go there? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you could say, move the arm to this position, move it to this position, go down, pick up, or you could just be like, pick that thing up. Right. And, yeah. but if you had a language that just said, pick that thing up, put it over here, then the robot would have to figure out how it moves through space in order to accomplish that goal, which would mean that basically your compiler has to do all the math to figure out like uh, an arc it can go through without hitting anything. And I'm wondering, it, you know, is that something that people do in robotics? Like, are people accustomed to having a higher, you know, a higher level language like that? Or are people pretty accustomed to explicitly writing down the coordinates that they want to move through in order to accomplish some task? Um, depends on if you're, if you're space constrained, then you kind of make sure that the robot moves the right way. Otherwise you, um, all most of these, uh, GUIs have uh, inverse kinematics, um, okay. that are being used where basically I, I haven't looked at that specifically, but let's say I want to go down and Z, you know, yeah. the robot will, will figure out how figure it, it does out. that. Got it. Okay. And there's yeah. a lot of different ways, right? It could have like, it could have. <clears throat> disjoint and then go out on the side and kind of do that yeah. or the other way. So um yeah that's that's fairly common where you use inverse kinematics and then do that. Sometimes what people do is they do through points 
So you say, hey, go to this position up here in the right. shelf to something, but I want you to pass through this point to make sure that it doesn't like crash into the shelf from the bottom or something. Like that. Right. Okay. Do you get wacky stuff with the inverse kinematics? Like I've seen, for example, if you're not using quaternions, if you use like, uh, you know, Euler angles, you can get these screwy arcs that, you know, from a robot. Um, mm -hmm. it, does it ever come up with something that's really bizarre and you're just like not really sure why I did that? Yeah, so you can get um, what's, you basically if two axes are aligned with each other, yeah, and then you tell it to move somewhere, then it doesn't know which axis to move because you could okay. go this way or that way. Yeah, and that's that's a very common error because of because it's all a matrix, and you know I don't I haven't looked at the math, but basically sure. what I've been told is that there's a zero somewhere, and you try to divide by zero. Yeah, I'm not sure why, <laughs> but um, yeah, that that's makes sense. The, um, I'm trying to replicate it. But it's not not that easy. Let's see. Basically, let's do this to zero. I think if we put this to zero. Oh, it won't let you. <laughs> I think it's it'll go to zero point one or minus zero point one. Probably yeah. for that reason. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay. Then if I move from here. Come on, we can do this. So, and now I go into. <clears throat> yeah, now it can't move. Right. Okay. Uh, center it's sort of like a gimbal right lock here. or something. Yeah. 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 Because of the math that's in there, which is yeah, that's, that's always. So that's when you program a robot, you always have to make sure all the axes are kind of bent. Yeah. If it's straight up, then you kind of you have some issues. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it seems like an interesting code synthesis problem. You could have like um, a nice little formal methods paper where you or PL paper where you come up with a high level language that can detect when it's in a you know an error state like this, and then it has like some sort of alternative mathematical routine to figure out the solution, right? So yeah, if, it's if... really important that. Let's say you're looking at an application. Maybe you have a mm -hmm. camera system that tells the robot to go somewhere. And then by accident, yeah. it goes through that point. Then <clears throat> that's a big issue, right? Right. So you need some form of error protection there. Yeah, that's or interesting. Error yeah. So How much time do you a... personally? Oh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I had a question relative to your emphasis on cost. I understand you want to reduce it, but um, help me to understand when people are implementing these customizations, these uh, robotics, is the life of the solution months, years, or decades? Mm -hmm. I would, so our solutions are typically 10 years. That's the goal, okay. but it really depends, right? So. If you have a, it depends on the duty cycle on the motors of the system. So if your motor runs at 30% duty cycle, so 30% of what the motor can do, then the system will last really long. But if you have an application that 
you need a lot, a lot of acceleration, lots of high loads, and your system is kind of designed at like 80 or 90% of the duty cycle, then you should be expecting it not to last as long. Okay. And then there's also the industrial, you know, the settings where a robot moves 24 seven um, or the cycle. Typically we assume that a robot arm picks something, places it down, has a couple seconds and then does the same over again. But if the uh, robot is running continuously, that also plays into the role. So I guess to answer your question, it's always, it always depends what you need. And that is one of the reasons that we do have other robots on the on the platform as well. So for example, some of these Epson robots, they're meant, uh, they were designed for mechanical watch assembly, which is something that runs kind of like 24 seven and is super precise and a really long time. Whereas I would say our robots are meant to be more in the light duty, um, light duty ROM, where maybe you have the machine running for a couple hours a day um, and don't accrue as many cycles. Okay, and when it comes down to these robotic solutions, um, if you have to swap out, say, the arm that you have for another arm that's on the marketplace, mm -hmm. is the programming basically the same, or are you starting back at zero and programming it all the way on through with that interface you were showing? Or do you end up having, if you s swap out this arm for something from, say, Epson, having yeah. to come up with yet another interface in order to do the programming. What's the reality there? Um, we're designing a product right now. We call it the Any app. Let me see. We have it here. Uh, it's in software. And the Any app is basically the same interface, but for other robot arms. Um, it's a product that is fairly new. And um, I don't think it is uh, fully released yet. Um, but I think at the beginning of next year, we will, we will be able to, to kind of program all kinds of other robots, even the Epson robots from the software, um, which is going to be exciting. So I guess that's part of the mission to make it easier to program robots. And if you have to learn how to program a Fanuc, a universal robot, an Epson and an Igus robot, that's kind of... <laughs> an education itself, I guess. A difficulty. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, what I'm thinking about is back in, say, the mid-80s, uh, IBM started to refocus their software development folks. They basically supported COBOL and C and Fortran, a number of different languages. What they found is that their customers basically stuck to these languages. And once they had invested heavily, they basically painted themselves into a corner. Either they had to get people with that particular language proficiency, comma, or they were yeah. SOL. What they ended up doing is finding a way to write their programming languages in such a way that you could write something and see that worked with or interface to an application written in COBOL or Fortran and basically busted that nut so that you could use any of the programming languages anywhere and it made no difference at all. It 
feels to me very much like what you're talking about with this any app yeah. is the possibility of creating uh, something universal. Uh, think of it as open source. Think of it as a standard API interface for all these different components so that you could have uh, a common gateway to the components that the software could speak to. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. And it starts with the robots and then it goes into the add-ons like the grippers, you know? Um, if you figure out how to send the signal to the gripper directly, you can integrate that into the software. Same for the camera. Um, and I think you can see that already in the industry that companies typically, if a new car, car like if a car manufacturer build, builds a new car factory, they choose one robot brand on purpose. They don't go around and say, hey, this robot from this company and this robot from this company, because that makes sense. It's because if they have to train their people on all kinds of different robots, it's going to be super, super difficult. And being an expert in one is very valuable. So they just say, hey, I have this plant. I need 3,000 robot arms. And then they just buy it from one company, even though it might not be the best product for the specific application. Yeah, but that still speaks to your assertion that if you have a robot arm and it gets too good enough to pick up, uh, say, a hockey puck off of a, a conveyor belt, that's mm -hmm. a radically different set of tolerances than going to the folks that made the Swiss watches. Yeah. And so I guess what this any app or like any other service that is trying to do this provides is that you can just choose the best component with the best value for the specific application. It's an interesting application you're trying to work with. This is this is quite a challenge and this has got to be a lot of fun. I I love it every day. There come different different applications, different problems and it's a lot of brainstorming, but um it's really cool and you know, uh, one of the most satisfying things is that we can reliably deliver fully automated systems for under $100,000, mm. which is something that there's very little, little out in the market. And for most of the competitors, even they, they don't compete in this space because they don't make money. Mm -hmm. And due to the fact that we can kind of leverage this platform, we can uh, we can actually be very cost efficient and help people that don't really wouldn't really been able to automate before because they don't can't do it themselves. So, from Swiss watches to adult entertainment, exactly. <laughs> Sick, <laughs> cool. That's probably a good place to to uh, uh, sign off. So yeah, and thank you so much for talking to us. It's really fun. Um, uh, if people want to reach out to you, can they email you? What's the best way for them to get in contact? Yeah, uh, email, uh, LinkedIn. Um, I can put it in the chat. Does that work? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll share. Well, why don't you put it in the Slack? Because I think you're already in the Slack, right? Or you can send it, send your email to me and I'll put it in the Slack either way. Um, yeah. But. Uh, yeah, you can also find me on uh, LinkedIn. And uh, also, you can just go on RBTX and then sign up for one of those calls. And uh, so someone from the team will show you the robotics lab um, 
So those calls, you'll land directly for a free 30-minute call in the, the robotics lab in Rhode <laughs> Island, where we have all our robots and other robots. And then we can just show you some of the stuff that we have there. Very cool. Free to just all sign right, up. No need to, yeah. But... To buy a $100,000 robot. <laughs> no, no need to buy anything. It's all free. Sounds good. Thank you, Ian. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank okay, you. Bye.